Welcome to Underpulse, where this week we discuss the internet. Yeah, so there's been a lot of stories about big tech and the internet in the past few months and years. We've had stuff about elections, obviously the election of Donald Trump and Brexit and Russian interference in democracy. We've had workers' rights in Amazon warehouses and the invasion of privacy by the Amazon Echo and Alexa systems. Hate crime in India, propagated by Twitter and what Facebook believes to be their own facilitation of ethnic cleansing in Myanmar. But this week we're going to take a slightly different approach to this because we've had what on surface might seem a little bit more of an amusing story come up this week, which is about Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, and his intimate messages. I mean, I I didn't think that I would discuss dick pics at 9am on a Wednesday morning at the LSC campus. We're pushing boundaries. We are pushing boundaries. Um... But let's just not go into into the whole dick pic scene. I know we don't need the gory you know we don't need the details. I just uh, what we want to talk about is how 2019 this story is. You're exactly right. I mean, it's the CEO of Amazon, the richest man in the world. Although this has been done by text messages, this is the idea of his telecommunications, which have reached into every part of his personal life and have obviously compromised his privacy. Yeah, and, and the really interesting bit about this story for me is, the, well, f- first of all, <laughs> the denial of the Saudi Arabian foreign minister. Yeah, taking to the telly to deny it, which is a curious thing to do for someone who definitely the, is not evo- involved, involved in this. So th- this is, we've seen Saudi Arabia denying a lot of things that they seem to have been involved with. So this raises a lot of questions. Yeah, I, and obviously this Trump connection where um, the... <laughs> brother of the person who's received these pictures was alleged to be the person to have leaked this and seems to have done it with what he believes to be the knowledge and approval of the president of the United States. If this is true, this is, yes, already the most 2019 story of 2019. I don't think, I mean, this is what I thought in 2018 when I heard all the stories. I was like, it's not going to get better. It's not going to get more intense, but yeah. it did. We're two months in. We can wrap this up now. I'm not sure. I think it's going to get worse, just like last oh year. <laughs> this is just the start. So I think we, we can spend a lot a lot of time speculating about what weird stories will happen in this year, but it might be more interesting to take a look at how did we get here in the first place. Yeah, it seems so odd to have such a ridiculous story come up this year, and perhaps if you were to take a view on it, sort of if an alien were to come down to Earth and look at exactly what's going on, they might think that this is totally bizarre. But it seems to make a lot of sense when we look at the history of the internet and the sort of ideologies that underpin those early, early sort of Silicon Valley pioneers, in a sense. And I guess this all comes, maybe if we take a look at the word cyberspace, which was obviously sort of used to refer to the internet, but even before that, in sort of pre-internet days, it was used by sci-fi and cyberpunk authors often talking about this sort of utopia where everyone is connected and everyone communicates obviously in a lot of ways and as a lot of sci-fi goes it falls into dystopia sometimes but this idea of everyone being connected and everyone being in this space which is connected to albeit separate from the world is quite an interesting one especially if you look at the sort of libertarian tendencies of the early web pioneers, the idea that they didn't necessarily want to monetize access to the internet, but that 
everyone would have these digital rights, everyone would be able to act as an individual on the internet in anonymity in some respects, and that sort of rejection of government regulation and a love of this idea of internet freedom seems to sow the seeds for this eventual monopolization by these companies? Yeah, I think uh, what I find most interesting about these stories, and, and you mentioned some of those um, earlier about ethnic cleansing, for instance, it's the relationship between the big tech companies and states, because as far as I'm aware, states are struggling to regulate this phenomenon because it's so international, it's so global, it supersedes their national boundaries and that makes it really difficult. But on the other hand, there is this recognition that it's necessary to regulate at some levels, while at the same time states are working together quite actively with companies like Amazon uh, in terms of developing technologies that help them secure their borders or that help them use face recognition in uh, street patrolling, for instance, in their police efforts. So I, I find it really difficult to see any scope, any room for serious regulation at this point. Not only because it's an international phenomenon, but also because states are so deeply involved and are um, are using these platforms for their own benefit. Yeah, and I guess it's sort of a symbiotic relationship in that respect. And I guess that's why states are so reluctant to begin to regulate these giants is one in part because they are subject to democratic um, responsibilities like things like elections and stuff like that people simply don't like a free service being taken away from them and the idea that if news is propagated by things like Facebook and Twitter it becomes very problematic if the state starts trying Mm -hmm. to regulate that too tightly but I guess also the respect that Companies like Apple rely very heavily on government, and as you were saying, Amazon sort of contributes to government. And this sort of cycle where, and we'll talk about this a bit next week when we talk about the entrepreneurial state, but Apple have taken a lot of technologies from the US defense services and NASA and all of these things, whereas Amazon and some of these newer tech companies seems to be giving back to the government in a way. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this symbiotic relationship is there. And a a great example is Nick Clegg, who is now vice president of global affairs and communications at at Facebook. But another example, while I was researching Amazon, was, for instance, the fact that they have a vice president of global public policy, which makes me wonder if you're a private company, how do you have a vice president of global public policy? What, What does this person do? Well, I'm assuming that person is in charge of the relationships with governments around the world. And uh, that that's very interesting. I think that's a very um, problematic development, but it's also very interesting. Something that I think is probably the most problematic development of big tech in recent years isn't necessarily their influence over electoral politics, although that seems to be the one that people latch onto the most, but it seems to be their integration into the everyday lives of developing countries and countries which haven't had the same access to the internet that we in the UK and people in the US and stuff have enjoyed for a rather longer period of time. So I know that Facebook has started to introduce internet servers and internet access into places in Africa and I think also across Asia in some of the countries, but they have set them up in a way that is much more beneficial for people using Facebook rather than 
other carriers or service providers. So I know that I think it's in Myanmar in particular, people can access the internet, but they can access the internet for free through Facebook. So as we are able to access the internet through a lot of other means, these places seem to increasingly access or even see the internet as Facebook. Well, yeah, I agree that that's that might be a problematic thing. But I think in the end, if you look at our own internet use here in, and in other places where the internet has been around for a long time and available to a lot of people, I think it has grown to become... The internet has become a synonymous to Google. We don't really enter. We don't go online without using Google. So I'm really wondering what the difference is there, unless there is some fundamental difference in their ethics between Facebook and Google, um, which is one I'm not aware of. I know that Google started out uh, wanting to not do any evil, but I'm, I don't think that they have stuck to that uh, phrase very carefully. So I, I'm, I'm not sure if there is such a fundamental difference, which of course doesn't make it less problematic. I'm just trying to say that maybe we should talk about that more and not be too shocked about Facebook employing a similar strategy somewhere else. Yeah, perhaps we don't take a critical enough view of our own usage. Obviously, there's been loads and loads of news recently in electoral politics and stuff like that. Obviously, the Mark Zuckerberg Senate hearing and stuff like that, when he was asked by one of the senators, would you tell me where you stayed last night and all of these very invasive personal questions, and he refused, which was probably one of the most obvious sort of traps that we see but we only seem to take this approach when there's been a scandal hmm. or when something particularly newsworthy has happened so if we acknowledge that there might be some more important structural issues instead of going from crisis to crisis to another crisis what would you say is the solution can we break these tech firms up if they're so international it seems like Google is based in America, but it has hubs all over the world. Its its tax is based in uh, Ireland and the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. um, it just seems there seems to be so many very important problems, but how do we solve this? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's a very hard question to answer. And here at the LSE, there's an interesting report by the, um, the 3T Commission, the Trust Technology and something else that I forgot. We can put in another uh, one of those uh, elevator music things. Yeah. About that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so the 3T Commission at the LSE uh, Media and Communications Department, it stands for tr Truth, Trust and Technology, of course. Well done. Yeah. Needless to say, I, I searched this on Google. And it tries to think about this, like what form could regulation take? Because it argues that it's clear that self-regulation has not worked sufficiently and it will not work sufficiently. Now, I, I agree that it hasn't historically worked, but I, I hope and maybe I give too much credit to Bezos and Zuckerberg's self-reflective capacities when I say this, but I hope that once the most rich man in the world is exposed to the very same dangers that we are exposed to on a daily basis, maybe he will develop some sense of some consciousness That's about privacy. But I'm, I, I'm not hopeful. I definitely don't think that this is likely. Yeah, it would be the, the easiest solution, wouldn't it, if it came from the very people who make these platforms work? 
Yeah, I mean, it would be it'd be easy. I mean, there are, I guess, some respects in which this has worked. If you look at WhatsApp, which is obviously now owned by Facebook, it's taken a couple of steps with some elections because in a lot of countries, Facebook, or rather WhatsApp, is used rather like Facebook in the respect that you get a message from a friend and then you forward it to many of your dozens of group chats, which act as your primary social networks. And that seemed to be very influential in the election of Bolsonaro in Brazil. Now he's Mm -hmm. getting his weekly shout-out. And WhatsApp limited that, and they limited the number of messages that you can forward to people to sort of stem the rise of fake news and these sort of offensive or shareable or factually incorrect sort of memes that people are sharing with each other, which propagate this sort of electoral politics. So I guess we are seeing some sort of green shoots of, a little bit more self-awareness and self-regulation, but I guess it's not something that we can rely on. Yeah, I think this is an interesting point. And we talked to um, someone who knows a lot about this um, a couple of days ago, and she really emphasized this. She couldn't emphasize enough how often she has told her readers that they shouldn't trust platforms for regulating themselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we had the pleasure of speaking to Sarah Manavis from The New Statesman, who is their digital and internet culture writer, And we asked her exactly what the problems with relying on the internet to self-regulate are. I feel, again, like I'm beating that drum over and over like a broken record, but pretty much with any, especially social media companies, you just see the same behavior, which is essentially user has an issue. Users en masse tell company they have this issue company says oh we're listening to you company implements new change that has nothing to do with it so like the great examples are like the most recent one i think the one you might be quoting from is tumblr banned porn and tumblr has big issues with like um you know sort of like child grooming and issues with sort of like usability problems um and users have asked them for this all the time but the one things users have not asked for is like we don't want like, nobody said, hey, could you get rid of, like, GIFs of, like, breasts on Tumblr? Um, and yet Tumblr said, ah, that is, to quote John Mulaney, the squeaky wheel wrong uh, with this institution. So, yeah, and then obviously, like with any of these things, they've done it really poorly. So now people will post a picture of a tower and that will get marked as an erect penis. Um, so that's not really solving anyone's problem. That's not even solving the problem that Tumblr claimed it wanted to. But it's the same with Twitter banning Nazis and then saying, oh, we're going to make it so you can edit tweets. Um, or Facebook saying, oh, your data privacy um, is very important to us. But then secretly are actually recording teenagers' um, Facebook use. Um, so yeah, it's just anywhere you turn, there is a problem to be solved. And social media tech response is to solve a problem that isn't really a problem at all. Yeah, and there's been some pretty big problems that you've written about in terms of hate speech and sort of facilitating ethnic cleansing in Myanmar. And have have these tech companies done anything about that? Have they cleared this up at all? No, so I think that they try to say that they're doing things. So like that Facebook ethnic cleansing in Myanmar, oh, just a casual bit of ethnic cleansing. Um, they didn't conduct it themselves, I should say, for... Uh, <laughs> yeah, what is it, libel issues? Um, They sort of quietly admitted, oh, hey, actually, we commissioned this independent report and it says that we might have been the platform upon which people could organize to do race-fueled hate crime and murder and things like that. And 
Yeah, but what they do is they say they're going to do things and say things like, I think Facebook said they're going to hire journalists or hire people to monitor this kind of stuff. WhatsApp had this issue in India where loads of people were, WhatsApp has a culture in India where you can forward messages. There's a big forwarding culture. Um, and what they said was, oh, you can only forward messages to 20 people. So that if somebody makes up a story about like somebody being murdered, it can't get forwarded on to like a thousand people very quickly and spread sort of like the new version of like the viral email chain. Um, but again, these are like dealing with symptoms of a systemic problem that these platforms have, which is that they make it very easy, well, they make it very easy for people to organized to do good things, it makes it very easy for, again, not to be a cliche, fake news to spread. And it's a, it's an enormous problem. Like I do not envy them. Like they have a major problem on their hands, but the efforts, if you can call them efforts to change that is really minimal given how big the problem is. And these problems are obviously extremely big for the people affected by them, yes. but it seems that <laughs> Um, sort of unlike earlier days in the internet where, say, MySpace or something would sort of lose the users and shut down, Facebook still seems to be going fairly strong. So even if it doesn't do these things, does it matter to Facebook? Are they too big to fail? I think it is kind of a matter of that. I think that when you have almost a monopoly over a certain thing, like Facebook is an interesting one because we are sort of seeing the, dem not demise of Facebook, but we're seeing it like Gen Zers do not use it as a go-to platform. Um, they go to Snapchat or Instagram. They don't really go to Twitter, but you know, it's not as ubiquitous as it once was. But I do think that to see these platforms actually die, um, it's, I mean, I think we're talking, I mean, I would think even saying five years is too soon, maybe 10 years is too soon. Like sure, they'll probably eventually get flushed out by something bigger, but really in the grand scheme of things yeah i think they probably are too big to fail because people still use them and they rely on them to talk to other people they see it as a part of their daily life and they're just not willing to give that up even if it means i don't know yeah like your data's being stolen and people are dying <laughs> and we've seen sort of authoritarian regimes take some steps not necessarily good steps in in monitoring these things but facebook seems to have sort of acquiesced to some authoritarian regimes attempting to regulate it, but more democratic regimes seem to be too afraid to get involved, especially what we've seen, obviously, with social media over, say, the Brexit vote and things like that. And I'm just wondering, are there any prospects of democratic states and institutions ever getting involved to try and change this? Well, I think the interesting thing there is that I think that they kind of have, tr I mean, it's how you define try. I just did a very large eye roll. Um, but I mean, the UK government has tried to get Facebook in to do a sort of hearing like the way Mark Zuckerberg did in the US um, House of Representatives in Congress. Um, actually, it was the Senate hearing, sorry. Um, but yeah, but in Congress in the US. And Facebook is just refusing to even acknowledge that they've been invited. They did say like, oh, we're going to follow GDPR regulation in the EU, but that's also because they legally have to, to be in Europe. So I, mean, I think you can say, yeah, I guess that there is some effort by democratic bodies to get them to comply, but ultimately it's a lot of effort for something that, in terms of like government priorities, making Facebook safer to use is like low down on the list. So it sort of is, you're stuck in between a rock and a hard place where, yeah, you could make an effort, but is the reward really gonna be that high? And ultimately will Facebook or any other tech company actually end up complying with those rules. So yeah, I think it, it's just, it's a no-win situation.
Over the course of this, we've seen a number of scandals keep cropping up in very similar formats from all of the social media giants and then things like Amazon with their workers' rights. Is there anything that you predict to become a bigger problem in the future in terms of these recurring scandals, or do you think it's just more of the same? I do think workers' rights is actually going to be a really big thing. I think um, tech has this weird divide between the Facebooks, Twitters, Instagrams, where you have like the median salary at Facebook. I can't remember if it's just in the U.S., or if it's globally, is 240K. Like, it's astonishing. So, and you know, at Google, people have great perks. Like, there are really only, people really only have good things to say about working at those kinds of tech companies. On the other side, you have ones that fuel the gig economy, which is like Deliveroo, um, and not really Amazon, but like a bit Amazon in a way, and then Uber. Um, and that's where you see a really big difference. So I do think, in terms of those bigger tech giants, like the, the social media tech giants, we're not necessarily going to see workers' rights coming into it, but I think this year we're actually going to see a huge amount discussed about work generally. Um, and that gig economy, those kinds of tech companies that have that gig economy thing going on, that's going to become a huge topic for them about their workers' rights. Okay, and it can't all be bad, can it? <laughs> um, in what ways, perhaps over the last sort of five years, have we seen the growth of these not necessarily just the tech monopolies, but internet culture and the way that we interact with the web and with each other grow? Well, yeah, and that, despite the fact that I'm talking about a lot of these terrible things and I seem like someone who despises tech and the internet, I actually really love the internet. I think that, again, it's a double-edged sword. And uh, while we've been talking about that negative side, there are these really positive sides. I mean, globalization, thanks to the internet, is really great when it comes to personal relationships. Um, I mean, most of my really close friends now are actually people I met on Twitter, which is really embarrassing to say, but it's also very normal. Um, you know, I, I think that there is a lot going on online that is really terrible with, you know, sort of things that were maybe in 2005 happening, but they were sort of these mocked kind of niche internet communities, whether that is the kind of neo-Nazis we have today or white nationalists or ethno-nationalists. Um, but, and now they become like an actual serious thing and because of the internet having more people simply, they become more popular and therefore an actual threat. But um, there are really lovely things and people can form really important relationships online that the internet sort of breaks down traditional barriers. Um, and that's what I really like about the internet. And you can find these communities um, that you would have no other way of finding. Amelia Tate, who was actually my predecessor at the New Statesman, wrote a really interesting piece for Dazed um, just last week about is any hobby too niche online and Googling things like people that eat mustard and peanut butter sandwiches and like or like stuff blankets up their shirts but like they actually are able to find like weird other people that have the same passion um, as they do and and yeah and maybe you don't think everybody's eating disgusting sandwiches and stuffing blankets up their shirts is a valuable thing, but for some people it really is. And obviously that means that perhaps more mainstream than that. Hobbies, you do find these communities and there are bad ones, but there are also a lot of really good ones and probably mostly really good ones. And coming back to politics, we've seen that there's been some pretty big differences between US and UK political culture, especially online with young people. So we've had turning points in the US, which is, I mean, they're moderately successful amongst some groups, political organisation, and then they've tried to translate it over into the UK and it seems to have been a bit of a flop. So what exactly would you say the differences are? I think, like, the differences between 
UK. I mean, I'm American. Um, I grew up in the US. So my Twitter is really kind of split down the middle of like UK political Twitter because I've obviously lived here for almost seven years now. Um, and then American political Twitter. And I think that you can divide, you can see the divide between those two uses of political internet the same way you can look at the difference between the west wing and the thick of it like <laughs> um like i mean i think they both are at their core like i think like it is all kind of i don't know if i can say shit show but i guess you can bleep me out um but it is all just kind of a mess so i think it is actually like the thick of it but i think american political twitter likes to think of itself as more respectable and reverent of the of the institution whereas the uk is just like one endless piss take um and i i think yeah so like turning point is a perfect example where it's an entirely i mean it's just the most risible thing you've ever seen it's just like trying it's like getting kids who were born with a silver spoon and wear like suits like they get up and they put on a suit in the morning to like go to their class at their like random like university campus um but they actually like and they say things like socialism sucks like obama sucked like it's just it's really uncreative but because it's in the u.s it does get this sort of air of respectability and they get like actual proper speakers but that does not translate to a uk audience um and it just ends up being the platform for endless mocking, endless memes. Um, it just in the way that in the US, well, sure, it probably gets made fun of. It is really successful, whereas in the UK, something like that just cannot translate um, and it flops. And yeah, I think that like West Wing thick of it divide really helps identify not necessarily the reality of what these political situations are, but the way that they are treated by their internet audience. Do you think there's a left to right divide in this as well as a sort of west wing thick of it because it seems that the right on the internet in america seems to be on the rise and doing remarkably well whereas in the uk i might be in my internet bubble but seems to be doing much worse well i think that the problem it's the same reason why you don't really get that many right wing comedians it's just that right wing politics traditionally doesn't lend itself to being funny <laughs> um watching Donald Trump Jr. try to make a joke versus watching like, I don't know, like Chelsea Clinton try to make a joke. Like, sure, they're still not going to be that funny in like real world sense. But in political sense, like Chelsea Clinton's funnier. Like she has a, 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 there's an essence of self-awareness there. Um, and so, yeah, and I think that that applies to the UK, too. I think the Tories are probably a little bit more self-aware than Republicans. Um, but I also think that British people are probably more self-aware than Americans. <laughs> so I think that's probably where that lies. But yeah, I just think that, I mean, it's so hard to unpack why being left wing lends itself to being funnier than being right wing. But th there's definitely that issue where there's just something missing. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening to Underpulse. Uh, my name is Fleur. I've been Hayden. And you can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Mixcloud. And Acast now. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to, through the evil of big tech, get it on Google or Apple just yet. But bear with us on that one.
Yeah, and we... <laughs> yeah, that casual bit, yeah. the, that the, the two genders, data being stolen and death. <laughs>